welcome to The Reader Podcast. My name is Frances and I work for The Reader. Every year at The Reader, we choose a new bookshelf, which is a selection of novels, non-fiction and poetry linked by a single theme. This year's theme is Light and Darkness, and you can see the list of the literature included in the year's bookshelf on The Reader's website. The purpose of The Reader Bookshelf is to be a common resource a mechanism for recommending great literature to staff and volunteers across the organisation. Poems, extracts and stories from the bookshelf appear in the publications that the reader make for the public and for our volunteers, and it shapes the events programmed at the reader's headquarters. One of the books on this year's bookshelf is Wintering by Catherine May, and we were delighted when Catherine accepted our invitation to appear at the Reader's Gravity Festival in October this year. Catherine appeared via Zoom and was joined by researcher Melissa Chappell, whose wholehearted recommendation of wintering was one of the reasons the book was included in our bookshelf. Melissa's appreciation of wintering is deeply personal, but it's also related to her PhD research on shared reading with autistic and non-autistic people which challenges assumptions about autistic people's capacity for empathy. I hope we'll be able to talk to Melissa in more detail about her reading research in another episode of the podcast. But for now, let's listen to the discussion recorded at Gravity between Catherine May as writer and Melissa as reader. They were hosted by Philip Davis, Emeritus Professor of English Literature at the University of Liverpool, whom regular listeners to this podcast will recognise. Catherine, Melissa and Phil talked about wintering and they also discussed Catherine's 2018 memoir which is called The Electricity of Every Living Thing and which is about the walk Catherine made along the southwest coastal path as part of her journey to come to terms with her diagnosis of autism. And towards the end of the talk there's mention of Catherine's next book, Enchantment, which will be published in May next year. Here now is Catherine, reading from Wintering. Everybody winters at one time or another. Some winter over and over again. Wintering is a season in the cold. It's a fallow period in life when you're cut off from the world, feeling rejected, sidelined, blocked from progress or cast into the role of an outsider. Perhaps it results from illness or a life event such as a bereavement or the birth of a child. Perhaps it comes from humiliation or failure. Perhaps you're in a period of transition and have temporarily fallen between two worlds. Some winterings creep upon us more slowly, accompanying the protracted death of a relationship, the gradual ratcheting up of caring responsibilities as our parents age, the drip, drip, drip of lost confidence. Some are appallingly sudden, like discovering one day that your skills are considered obsolete, the company you worked for has gone bankrupt, or your partner is in love with somebody new. However it arrives, wintering is usually involuntary, lonely and deeply painful. But it's also inevitable. We like to imagine that it's possible for life to be one eternal summer and that we have uniquely failed to achieve that for ourselves. We dream of an equatorial habitat, forever close to the sun, 
an endless, unvarying high season. But life's not like that. Emotionally, we're prone to stifling summers and low, dark winters, to sudden drops in temperature, to light and shade. Even if by some extraordinary stroke of self-control and good luck, we were able to keep control of our own health and happiness for an entire lifetime, we still couldn't avoid the winter. Our parents would age and die. Our friends would undertake minor acts of betrayal. The machinations of the world would eventually weigh against us. Somewhere along the line, we would screw up. Winter would quietly roll in. One of the things that uh, struck me, and I think you too, Melissa, in the book, is when you, just as a solitary individual, feel yourself on the cusp, I think is the phrase you use, of, of, of whatever wintering is beginning to happen. You're entering into uh, a bleaker a sort of world. Then uh, one of the things that I sort of recognised and also found frightening was uh, that's when you let go of certain friendships and begin to prepare to have to hunker down. That movement into a different season, rhythm, space was something we were interested in. <laughs> yeah, I think... It's really interesting, isn't it? Because our instinct might be to gather people around us. But in fact, when we're in quite a desolated space, or desolate, sorry, um, often we can't cope with too much. And it's, you know, the, the metaphor I'm using is thinking about the trees that drop their leaves in the winter. There's a sense that we need to cut down to the basics and to let go of some of the excess and things that we don't need because actually when we're in that kind of headspace quite often everything hurts our feelings and everything doesn't go right and I do think that one of the reasons we often winter is because it's time to shed some of the people in our lives you know we might have been caught up in a, a situation or a friendship group that in retrospect we regret that doesn't match our values that hasn't actually been taking great care of us um, and so that withdrawal to the extent that we can cope with it is actually a really vital part of the process because it allows us to reflect and regroup and to reimagine the next life that's going to come. You both feel particularly sensitive to overload. I think what I really liked in both kind of across wintering and the electricity of every living thing is the fact that there was never a sense that you were trying to suppress your overload, if that's fair to say, but that you were finding <laughs> ways in nature to kind of let it out almost, if that's a fair way to describe it. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think um, overload is pretty irrepressible, actually. Um, it, it's something that we often all try and keep on top of, but it, it just bursts out in strange ways, particularly if you're autistic. Um, and, and, you know, overload is a, a sort of repeated pattern in my life, uh, you know, across my whole existence. Um, and it's very hard to... It, it kind of sets off a... a, a a chain reaction um, of stress and of uh, exhaustion that becomes self-perpetuating. Um, and I always feel, or I've learned, I suppose I've learned to feel um, that the best thing to do is to process it actively. 
Um, and the thing that I learned in the course of writing Electricity of Every Living Thing, which I, I didn't know before I, I set off on that walk, um, was that one of the ways that I can kind of damp down that fire of overload is to is to walk um, and is it, but also to to just be out in a natural environment and I think for me there's something about the soundscape of particularly being by the sea you know that kind of white noise that the sea creates um, the 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 whole sensory landscape actually the the sort of scent that is much cleaner than anything that we have in our houses um, and the ability to be solitary. Um, and I think there's a lot of, of things about walking that is very somatically soothing, you know, that has that very kind of calming influence on the central nervous system. So, you know, the, the uh, regular pattern of walking, the, the sort of slight percussion it creates, um, it's, it, it's the only way I know to kind of get myself through those periods. And it's certainly not a quick fix either. It's something that I need to go back to over and over again. It has to be a practice. It can't just be like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go off for one day and I'll be fine. <laughs> it's all be solved. One of the reasons, I guess, why um, people relate to the book is that that feeling of of needing to stop or or pause or find a different place, a different pace, a different rhythm. Um, I remember you saying to me, Melissa, if you don't mind me no, recalling, okay. um, that when it happened to you and you thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to have to shut down now, you thought it was your fault and it was just you. And I think one of the things the book does, even though we're alone, um, is say it's not just you. Yeah. Is that, that was what you were feeling? Yeah, so I think that was um, after reading Winter and in particular, I think... I'd been through, and I think you mentioned it, Catherine, you say that those of us who are autistic especially kind of know that feeling quite well of winter. And, and I think I felt like I'd been there so often when I was kind of reading your book. And it was that sense of you feel so alone as you've entered this time and space that you shouldn't be in because you feel as though life should be an eternal summer. But I think what your book does is draw attention to the fact that it's such a natural human phenomenon that we've all experienced and... It's not just that we're not very good at connecting to other people about that experience, but also to ourselves. We're sometimes not kind enough, I think, going through those experiences. And that, that's what really struck me. Yeah, I mean, it's actually, it's kind of, it's a super normal experience. Um, it might come from lots of different reasons, but it's something that, that pulls most of us together. You know, most of us have had a moment in our lives when everything has just fallen apart and it's beyond our control and try as we might, we can't pull ourselves back together. Um, and it's, it's something, it's a secret we've kept from each other. You know, it's something that we have tended to feel very ashamed about and we've been able to think that it's our own individual failure um, that has caused this wintering and that therefore we hide away, we don't talk about it, and when we come back into the world, we try and conceal it. And you know, these things, they leave big gaps in our employment records and, and things like that. They, they make big holes in our finances. They have really big long-term effects. And one of the really interesting things about the book um, coming out in America is how difficult a lot of Americans find 
this idea uh, and how desperately in need of it they are because uh, you know I've, I've realized for the first time what a huge privilege it is to be European and to know that even if everything does fall through I still have access to healthcare um, and that I still you know can hope for some some state benefits however dwindling they they are um, and it's so it's actually for a lot of people now it's a really challenging idea that that there's an inevitability to life going wrong sometimes and that you can't organize yourself out of it that there's not a a set of steps that you'll take that stop you from getting sick sometimes or that will stop your parents from dying one day or any number of of things and there's certainly not a set of steps you can take that stops a global pandemic from happening um and so it's you know it's i think talking about the commonality we have about this this normal thing is just so vital we've needed it for a long time so um that that sense of of not everything being in pop psychology positive uh, that we're not always going to have progress and move forward but things go round there are different rhythms and seasons this was why when you were saying this was better for me than a self-help book melissa um say some can you say some more to to catherine about why it was better than a self-help book i think because it didn't feel like i was being told this is how you should be this is how you should do things but it rather felt like you were sharing your story for people to connect with and take with them as a, a sort of another human mind to feel through and, and think about in these kind of really difficult times. And Phil, it's coming to me, but I don't know who the person is that wrote it, but you might. It reminds me of, I think it was a poem, and it was within me, I found an eternal summer. And You're frightening me now, because <laughs> I can't remember. Um, perhaps I know, I'm the audience. too. <laughs> um, but go on. But that was, it was right in that I found after I'd read Winter and, and that also it really resonates because I think it's what I was getting from Catherine's book is that feeling that it's about finding oh, that core. It's within. Albert Camus. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In the midst of winter, I found there was within me an invincible summer and that makes me happy for it says that no matter how hard the world pushes against me within me, there's something stronger, something better pushing right back. I did not know that. That's lovely. It's the pushing right back that's, <laughs> that's great there, isn't it? Mm. There's a moment in the book about... You're listening to... The friend of yours, I think, is their child listening to... They're sharing ghost stories. And you remember that your grandmother used to tell you ghost stories. I'm paraphrasing <laughs> here, so put me right. Um... And then your grandmother is, is no longer alive, and she was the person, above all, as a ghost, you would have liked to come back and say, um, mm. for her to say something final. Yeah. Yeah, Grandma was a, um, a, a true believer in ghosts, and she was, a, she was like a very sweet, quiet old lady. Um, but she loved a horror film. So if The Shining was on, she'd sit up till two o'clock in the morning to watch it, you know. <laughs> um, and, I, and she was always, you know, always kind of reading true ghost stories and uh, all that kind of thing. Um, and, I, and when she died when I was 17, I, 
I mean, the first thing to say is like, I just didn't expect it. And I know I should have done in retrospect, but it didn't occur to me that it was going to happen. And I was very close to her and I was absolutely devastated. And I, I felt almost let down because I, because she, if anyone was going to come back and, and say hello, it was going to be her. She, you know, it was such a prevailing belief for her. Um, and I've been, and she's passed on like a, an absolute lifelong fascination with ghost stories for me because I love the way they operate, you know, like the, the way that ghosts are our own invention, really, that the ghosts are so personal that they are, that we're all haunted in a way and, and that they don't have to be material in, a, in any sense of the word, that they are some, an apparition that we conjure. Um, and it, and actually, I, I look back now and, and think how uh, how sort of poignant it is, I guess, that 17-year-old that me just thought there might be a chance that, um, that I might get a, a visitation and didn't, never did. The effect of those inevitably unfinished things in the rhythm of a life... Um, that's difficult to, to, to fit in because if I may redo your own words um, in a bit that, that moved me a, a lot in, in relation to your grandmother, um, that um, uh, what a bitter disappointment I felt that she didn't manage to appear at my bedside in the middle of the night, radiating comfort. And then this sentence. But then, that's what grief is. A yearning for that one last moment of contact that would settle everything. As Catherine was speaking, that exact last part was the part that was going back through my mind. That, <laughs> that idea that it's always about that one more moment. And I think that's maybe why we love things like ghost stories. Because it's the idea mm -hmm. of just that one more moment with somebody. It's, it's that suggestion of kind of justice that, that can happen like a rebalancing that can still occur and I, and I think we deeply yearn for that we you know we want to show them things we want to say something we want to settle the accounts if there aren't those uh, final satisfying ends to stories then that round and round and the incompletions and, and so on um, become part of, of the pattern. Um, I wanted to ask you, why is there, what does it mean when you say there's electricity? Instead of that final calm, what does it mean that there's electricity in every living thing? Because like wintering, these are, about, are, not, are also metaphorical, aren't they? Uh, electricity. Electricity is my way of describing the autistic experience. Um, so, and, and, you know, like, this is quite genuine. I mean, it, it's not deeply metaphorical sort of territory to say that when somebody else touches me, I feel like I get an electric shock. And there is a sense to me that anything that's alive, I can, I can feel its tingle. Um, and even if I'm near to someone, like, I can, I can feel that, them vibrating, which it's really hard to say that without sounding woo what I'm what I'm kind of getting at is the level of sensory sensitivity that autistic people live with, um, or, or many. I mean, some uh, for some people, it's the opposite. Um, so for some people are sensory seekers because they uh, don't get enough input. But 
for for me and for loads of other people like me, our calibration is turned up so high that um, that there is this kind of real jolt uh, that comes from things that other people wouldn't even notice. Um, but also at the same time, it it kind of expresses the the wonder of being autistic as well, like the good the good half of it. Um, which is the way that some things have got a, a magnetism and a fascination and the way that our very detailed brains can have capacity for awe and for the, the kind of joy of, of tuning into the things that give us joy, which is different for all of us. So, yeah, electricity is a very, a very, very useful word for me. I think as well, like, I'm just thinking, um, if you've ever been in a room full of other autistic people who all have that same experience, it's quite interesting because there's often almost like, if an emotion brews up in one person, it kind of dominoes yeah. through everybody. <laughs> or the same yeah. with a sudden kind of fascination or an interest as well. Yeah, it's a contagion between us. And I mean, there, there's the sense, you know, like traditionally people thought that autistic people were very unempathetic. And loads of us now actually describe it's the opposite, that we experience hyper-empathy. And I, when I'm in a room full of people, I feel like I'm feeling all their feelings alongside them. Like I'm just, I can't tune out from any inputs. And I, I don't, again, I don't think that's particularly woo. I think that's something that, that neurotypical people are just much more able to tune out and that I just don't have the capacity to filter. So I get all of it all at once. But that's why the, the books work, I, I think, for, for us who, I, uh, well, I call myself neurotypical. <laughs> I mean, I just think, well, that's typical of me. But, but, but it just, but when it, but those things that we try to muffle um, and not be too sensitive to, then the book begins to remind us that we've tried to, to tune out. Your diagnosis came, Melissa, when I think when you were 18. Yeah, Yours was uh, later than that, Catherine. 39. Um, <laughs> yeah. what's the, what, would you be willing to say a little bit about that adjustment of, of that retrospective mm. diagnosis? Yeah, it's, um, it's a huge thing because, I mean, it, you know, if you're diagnosed at 39 or, it, you know, I like to say identified now, actually, because I think, um, I don't think, I'm trying to demedicalize the language essentially. Um, but if you if you go that long without understanding that you're autistic, you've lived a whole life feeling profoundly different um, and experiencing a lot of isolation and rejection um, and and knowing like it, it's so obvious that your sensory and emotional universe runs in such a different way to the people around you. Um, and you're constantly trying to correct your course so that you align with that much more. Um, and, and for me, that meant that I had a very kind of, I don't know, sort of strong confabulatory response. You know, I told myself these stories that made me make sense. Um, and so I'd, you know, I always hated going to parties. Like I've always struggled in rooms full of people where there's noise. Um, but if you'd have asked me very short amount of time before my diagnosis, I would have said, oh, I love parties. I'm really sociable. I just happened to have got a headache at that one. Oh, and someone kind of was rude to me at that one. So I had to go home. Oh, and the room was, too, you know, like kind of 
I had I, I'd, I'd stored my way out of everything. Um, and so then when I had quite a sudden realization and I researched more into it and really understood it and, and was still fairly convinced, you have to sort of do this whole lifetime of unraveling. Um, and that includes your whole understanding of yourself and, and where you stand in the world and what you are and what you need um, and how your relationships are working. And it's incredibly hard to suddenly understand, like really, really comprehend how to meet your own needs. Like you're, you're very, very trained not to do that if you're autistic and you don't know you are. And so you have to sort of resensitize yourself to things that you've shut down, feel them all over again as if you were a child and figure out how you now live with those sensations in a way that doesn't break you. And it's a, it's a long, slow, uncertain process. And you have to be incredibly assertive with the people around you to make those changes and it's really surprising for them because as far as they're concerned like you are not a person that's ever demanded this before um and of course you're having to really assert something at a time when you feel the most uncertain you've ever felt about who you are um it's a it's a really it's a very particular time that um many many more people are going through now and it, i think it's very recognizable between us all you recognise that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I felt like I'd kind of just come out of that difficult teenage period, had to go right back into it. <laughs> Our work, what we've looked at, uh, me and Phil, is how non-autistic people so often have this default way of, of being and thinking and doing that they've kind of been taught from such an early age is, is the norm. And I think as autistic people, that's not natural to us. But as you say, before your diagnosis, you've tried so hard to slot yourself in and it's a whole new experience to open that back up again um, and I think kind of what we're interested in and the reason that I was drawn to your books as well is how literature can kind of help you to open that back up so that you don't feel like you have to almost pigeonhole yourself and try mm. and contain the kind of difficult feelings that you may be balancing. You were interested uh, Melissa in that uh, matter of how connections are made during uh, that yeah. reading winter. So I was curious whether um, any of your non-autistic readers in particular might have kind of noticed the autistic narrative that flows through it. So I think similar to what you were talking about with the, the way things sort of catch your attention, I felt like I could feel that as I was reading your book, um, but without it being kind of mentioned and labelled in a way that might prevent people from thinking and feeling through it. So, for example, I mentioned to Phil the section where you speak about Halloween. Mm. You're sort of moving very fluidly from one idea to another, but where you can see that emotion kind of connecting through. I wondered if any of your readers have sort of noticed that and, and felt for your perspective through that. Autistic readers definitely notice. Um, autistic readers see it as a really autistic book. Um, and they also see it as a book of autistic kind of wisdom, almost, you know, like a book that's about how you learn to cope as an autistic, like this is what you know if you're an autistic person who survives. Um, and I think at the same time, non-autistic readers are blissfully unaware that it has anything to do with it. And I love that it's got like a secret extra language that our people 
totally pick up on every time, which I, which, you know, which gives me joy because that feels like that sort of validation and acceptance of my autistic way of thinking. You know, you don't often get a chance to have it validated back to you. Um, and, and that has been really validating, actually. So, yeah, without even... I think I mentioned being autistic in the book once, and a lot of readers don't notice that, um, but autistic readers always do. <laughs> we're, we're coming close to the end now. Um, I wanted two things, really. One, uh, I don't want you, Melissa, to tell me off the afterwards that you, there was something you wanted to say no. or ask. So... <laughs> Um, that as an opportunity. Um, and also, Catherine, if I may, again, if, uh, this may be cheeky or it may delight your publisher, but I wonder if there's any chance of either you recalling for us or reading to us one of those corners, as you described, from um, Enchantment. Would that be possible? I'm not yet allowed to read from Enchantment, I'm afraid. Okay. Uh, that is still embargoed at the moment. Uh, I can read you sure. some more from Wintering, if you like. Yes. Readers, readers... <laughs> Read us out. I'll read you out. Melissa, did you have anything to say before I do? No, no, I'm just really happy to have heard from you. I think I'm going to read a little bit about, a little bit from the end, um, about uh, how to think about change. Every morning, I drive past a buzzard sitting on the fence by Manston Airport. He's enormous and grizzled, the feathers on his breast in permanent disarray. Incidentally, I have to tell you that quite soon after the book came out, I got an angry letter from someone saying, that is not your buzzard, that is my buzzard. <laughs> I had to tell you that. I like to think that he's lived a little, that he sits here to proudly display his war wounds. This morning, he's a lone sentry. I just about catch the yellow of his beak as I flash past. I'm beginning to think he waits for me here. He's my totem, the anchor to my day. He quells the anxious storm in my gut. I feel as though he witnesses me. I want all this to end like a neat narrative arc should. Life is settled again, certain. All my problems are solved, all my worries resolved. I want Bert to be happily installed in a new school that's a perfect fit for him, or for us to have decided to abandon the idea of a school altogether and to go gloriously, bravely, out into the world alone. I want to be able to say that we are not wondering whether we should sell our house and move to somewhere smaller in a cheaper town. I'd like to say that I do not still routinely joke that we should probably move into a caravan in the woods because that's the only thing we can reliably afford. Instead, I am often talked with worry and sometimes feel as though we're only a footstep away from chaos but I have to hold my nerve for fear of passing on my chronic sense of unbelonging in this world. I don't feel up to the task. I wonder for the thousandth time whether I'm good enough. I take a walk around Pegwell Bay to clear my head. Winter is on its way out. Only a week ago, we woke to find the surrounding fields pale with frost and the edge of every leaf picked out in white. Today is one of those voluminous days that feel like spring, with enormous blue skies strewn with clouds and playful blasts of wind that are almost warm. There are clumps of snowdrops along the path and catkins dangling lime green from the hazel. The marshes were frozen solid only a few days ago, 
but now they are flowing and lapping and rippling, waded by little egrets and sifted by curlews. I'm told that you can see seals lazing around the mouth of the creek. My luck isn't in today. As I walk, I remind myself of the words of Alan Watts, to hold your breath is to lose your breath. In the wisdom of insecurity, Watts makes the case that always convinces me, but which I always seem to forget. That life is, by its very nature, uncontrollable. That we should stop trying to finalise our comfort and security, and instead find a radical acceptance of the endless, unpredictable change that is the very essence of this life. Our suffering, he says, comes from the fight we put up against this fundamental truth. I quote, running away from fear is fear, fighting pain is pain, trying to be brave is being scared. If the mind is in pain, the mind is in pain. The thinker has no other form than his thought. There is no escape. For what, the only moment we can depend on is the present, that which we know and sense right now. The past is gone. The future, to which we devote so much of our brain power, is an unstable element, entirely unknowable, a will-o'-the-wisp that ever eludes our grasp. When we endlessly ruminate over distant times, we miss extraordinary things in the present moment. These extraordinary things are in actual fact all we have, the here and now, the direct perception of our senses, Whenever I return to Watts' work, a small rebellious voice rises up in me and shouts, that's not fair, life is more secure for some people than it is for others. But that doesn't make it any less true. Watts isn't offering us a cheap, puffed up solution to the vagaries of life. He isn't telling us that if only we can master this small trick of thought, all our dreams will come to fruition. He's telling us the truth. Change will not stop happening. The only part we can control is our response. <laughs> uh, I hope you can. I hope you can hear that uh, applause, Catherine. Um, <laughs> this is why it is a book, isn't it, for everyone? And uh, we in this room and the people online say again. Catherine May, thank you very much indeed. The appreciation you hear there for Catherine May was very warm and very real, and it was related to the feeling that Catherine had found words for a phase of life that was normal, inescapable and universal. After the event at Gravity, we asked several audience members as they were leaving what the conversation and the book, Wintering, had meant to them. Was there anything that resonated in the talk specifically for you in the idea of, of wintering? Well, yes, because everybody wants to go through a time where they want to cut off from things in life that, that they sort of push themselves into carry on doing, if you know what I mean. And, and you just don't want to do it really, but you feel as though you should do it. You know, and I think that's what the book gave to me. It was like, you, you don't have to do it just because you feel that you should do it, really. A lot of it related to 
what we have been through as for COVID. So I, I think there is points within it that everyone can relate to for what we, we've all been through on mass. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed about it. COVID though. It was about basically what I've been through in life and I'm sure lots of other people identify with that as well. And it, you know, I know she talked about COVID and she said a lot of people in America identified with it because of the COVID situation. But for me, it was just, wow, you know, loads of things that she, she's come up with. I've felt that way in life, even before the COVID situation occurred. We just expected to carry on as normal, if you know what I mean, in inverted commas, but, but, but you can't. Exactly. We don't have any alternative, really, do we? But that's what mothers like her give us. They do give us an alternative. You don't really have to do that, just because you think that's what other people expect of you. You don't really have to be that way. You just be yourself, really. What did you make of the event you just saw? I didn't really know what I was coming to. My friend just invited me. But I found it very moving mm. and, uh, and uh, things I could recognise in daily life that applies to me and my family. That's just made me think about, about quality of life and acknowledging mm -hmm. our feelings mm -hmm. and our differences, really, yeah. and thinking it's okay. <laughs> I think this idea of wintering can really resonate. What do you think it is about that idea that seems to, to connect with us? Just that it's something that literally everyone experiences and I like the way she described how you can either experience it repeatedly or it's just going to happen to everyone regardless, um, however lucky they might be. And that it's a shared human moment, but. A, you don't have to fight it and you, mm. you don't have to be strategizing all the time and, and trying to be positive. Like there was the, the sense of acceptance was beautiful, I thought, yeah. and that lovely sense at the end where she, she um, spoke about, you know, if you can just stop your mind going on and on and on and mm. that you can focus in the moment and be and enjoy the present and that, I know I know I said not having to strategize but that's a superb strategy and, and beautiful mm -hmm. so I love I loved that mixture and I loved her joy and her smiliness and I loved mm -hmm. uh, the interviewer's accessibility and how he, he was gentle and sensitive and, and drew things out and it was just it was just altogether brilliant yeah. loved it fantastic yeah, I completely agree with all of that yeah, and, yeah. The, you know, the re and the reality of wintering being just a fact of life mm -hmm. and a, a common human experience yeah I think that was, that was appealing. This episode will go out on the 13th of December, St Lucy's Day, which is, for many Christians, a festival of light, and was previously celebrated on the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. Catherine writes at length about St Lucy's Day in Wintering, in a chapter that encapsulates the sense of regeneration and renewal that might lie buried even in the darkest time or at the point of lowest ebb. In that chapter, she quotes this poem, A Nocturnal Upon St Lucy's Day, which was written about 1627 by John Donne. Tis the year's midnight, and it is the day's. Lucy's whose scarce seven hours herself unmasks. The sun is spent, and now his flasks send forth light squibs, no constant rays.
The world's whole sap is sunk. The general balm the hydroptic earth hath drunk, Whither, as to the bed's feet, life is shrunk, Dead and interred. Yet all these seem to laugh, compared with me, who am their epitaph. Study me then, you who shall lovers be at the next world, that is, at the next spring. For I am every dead thing in whom love wrought new alchemy. For his art did express a quintessence even from nothingness from dull privations and lean emptiness. He ruined me, and I am re-begot of absence, darkness, death, things which are not. All others, from all things, draw all that's good, life, soul, form, spirit, whence they being have. I, by love's limbeck, am the grave of all that's nothing. Oft a flood have we too wept, and so drowned the whole world, us two. Oft did we grow to be two chaoses, when we did show care to aught else. And often absences withdrew our souls and made us carcasses. But I am, by her death, which word wrongs her, of the first nothing the elixir grown. Were I a man, that I were one I needs must know. I should prefer, if I were any beast, some ends, some means. Yea, plants, yea, stones detest and love. All, all some properties invest. If I an ordinary nothing were, A shadow, a light and body must be here. But I am none, nor will my son renew. You lovers, for whose sake the lesser son At this time to the goat is run To fetch new lust and give it you, Enjoy your summer all. Since she enjoys her long night's festival, Let me prepare towards her, And let me call this hour her vigil and her eve, Since this both the years and the day's deep midnight is. I can't say I understand all of that poem. As I read it, I feel it trip me up and surprise me and force me to pay attention to its words. And I can feel it engaging my brain and feelings in an uncommon way. I also feel like the poem reaches a kind of truce at the end, an acknowledgement of life and love continuing for others elsewhere even when the poet can't have those things himself. The poem then seems to be another place where it's possible to engage with difficult, contrary feelings that won't fit into everyday expression. 
Whether you're listening to this poem, this episode, on St Lucy's Day, whether you're celebrating a festival of light, or whether you're wintering, or waiting for spring, I hope that we've brought you some time for quiet contemplation during this episode, and space for thought. We'll be back soon with another episode and more reading and conversation. Greatest thanks to Catherine May and to Melissa Chapel and Philip Davis. You'll find links to Catherine's books and more information in the description of this episode. Many thanks to Chris Lynn for editing and production of this episode and for those interviews with audience members recorded at Gravity Festival that you heard earlier in this episode. Thanks to Humphreys AV for all the recordings of the Gravity events themselves. And thanks to to our core funders, Arts Council England, the National Lottery Community Fund, the Players of the People's Postcode Lottery and the Steve Morgan Foundation. Thanks to you for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to let us know and leave us a review. Till next time, goodbye.